And I think this is what you see with Maud. So she's, you know, she's a vulnerable young woman who's who's struggling. And rather than dealing with those struggles kind of head on in a way that's realistic, uh, she's instead asking very, very lofty questions about what is my higher purpose. Welcome back to the Thinking Mind podcast. We're going to be doing a psychological analysis of a new horror film that is out in cinemas, or rather was out in cinemas before society as we know it began to collapse. So that's a film called St. Maud. And I mean, first off, it's worth mentioning, this is a, it's an excellent horror film. It's short, it's about one hour and 20 minutes. There isn't one extra scene or line of dialogue. It's really, it's a well-made film that works its way up to a very disturbing punchline. But when I watched it, I also felt a lot of the film in terms of the characters really maps on well to some psychoanalytic concepts. So I wanted to talk about the film a, a bit through a psychological lens. I think if you haven't seen the film, watch the film first before listening to this because there'll be spoilers and also it probably won't make much sense. But if you have watched the film, welcome. And uh, yeah, let's let's dive into it. Before we get started, thanks again for the lovely feedback. It's been really nice and really helpful uh, in terms of finding out what's been, what you guys have found useful, uh, what you want more of, and really encouraging. Uh, I hope everyone's doing well. So without further ado, let's talk more about St. Maud. So St. Maud is the directorial debut of a filmmaker called Rose Glass. And essentially it follows uh, a nurse called Maud, who was previously named Katie, but changed her name to Maud. She's a reclusive nurse, and early on in the film, you have Maud in dialogue with God, essentially. And she mentions how she wishes she had some sort of higher purpose. She's going about her job, she's a palliative care nurse for Amanda, and she's questioning sort of what's her larger role going to be in, in her life. She starts taking care of Amanda and then in her interactions with her, she becomes convinced that she should be Amanda's savior. That it's her responsibility actually to save Amanda's soul. And what happens is she begins to care for her. She notices Amanda does some things that Maud doesn't approve of. So Amanda drinks alcohol and she pays a girl for sex. And Maud, you know, having become convinced that she needs to be in charge of Amanda's salvation, tries to tries to stop this from happening. And they have they have a few different interactions. And although although initially Amanda is, I think, somewhat enamored by Maud's sincerity and her earnestness, eventually Amanda gets tired of it and she discards Maud. Then Maud falls into kind of a depression. She 
briefly in the middle of the film, she abandons kind of her pious ways. And what happens then is Maud, you know, falls into kind of a rut. She starts drinking alcohol. She has casual sex. She does all the things that, you know, she, she found difficult to tolerate with Amanda. Uh, and eventually she reaches out to a friend, but is rebuffed. Maud hits rock bottom. And then what you see in the film is she has something akin to a religious experience. Uh, you see her levitating off the floor. And then she's, she has renewed strength in her piousness and she has a renewed sense of purpose again to save Amanda, to be responsible for Amanda's salvation. She starts to spy on Amanda from afar. She tries to befriend Amanda's new nurse. Eventually she breaks into Amanda's house at night, wakes her up from her bed. They have another conversation. Again, Maud makes another attempt to try and save her. And what you see in the film is Amanda insults Maud and then appears to have become possessed by some kind of demon. And then Maud stabs Amanda to death and then lights herself on fire. And that's the, the end of the movie. Now, I'm going to interpret this film with the idea that nothing supernatural has actually occurred and, and everything's just everything that seems supernatural is just happening inside Maud's head. And we'll see if we can make sense of Maud's behavior and actions and her psychological attitudes, why, why she is the way she is and, and why she acts the way she does. So from the outset, you know, you already get the sense that Maud is troubled um, she's isolated. I think from the very, from one of the first scenes, you know that something definitely very bad has happened uh, to Maud, but you don't know really what the details are. So it's already interesting that in the first few scenes, Maud is having this dialogue with God and the sense of the dialogue is I'm destined for a higher purpose. And how how can we make sense of this? In psychoanalytic thought, there is such a thing as a defense of omnipotence or rather like a striving for omnipotence. And this is understood as a, an ego defense. So this is the idea that sometimes as human beings, particularly when we're very young, we feel very fragile. And of course, we are fragile, particularly when we're children, we're fully reliant on our parents. Uh, essentially, we, we can live or die by the attention that our parents choose to give us or not give us. And one of the ways it's posited in psychoanalysis that we deal with this immense sort of vulnerability, there's, there's many ways, of course, but one way is a kind of omnipotence defense. And that's where people psychologically assume a role of of being somehow more powerful than we actually are to protect us from the sense of, of vulnerability. And I think this is what you see with Maud. So she's you know, she's a vulnerable young woman who's who's struggling and rather than 
dealing with those struggles kind of head on in a way that's realistic. Uh, she's instead asking very, very lofty questions about what is my higher purpose. And although on the face of that, that's commendable, really what it is, is it's it's try, it's a way to try and, for Maud to try and evade the harsher realities of her life as it is at the moment. Like really, where you see Maud at the beginning of the film, she should be concerning herself with much more mundane uh, everyday issues like how can I do my job well how can I pay my bills how can I make friends how could I get into a good relationship but that's too hard for Maud at the moment so instead again as a kind of escape Maud is asking these lofty questions like what's my what's my higher purpose and so we can conceive of this as a kind of omnipotence defense uh, well, she's she's looking for it. She's looking for a sense of omnipotence. And then she starts working for Amanda. And gradually this opportunity to save Amanda uh, reveals itself. Amanda is an ex-dancer. And by all appearances, she's she lives a much more edgy lifestyle than Maud does. She, she drinks. Uh, she pays a woman for sex, as I mentioned earlier. She's much more hedonistic in her outlook. But because Amanda has terminal illness, she has cancer, Amanda's, you know, in a difficult place herself. And so she is probably much more open to some sort of religious or spiritual line of thought than she might otherwise be at a different point in her life. And I think she finds mods sincerity and her earnestness quite seductive and in the beginning of the film the first act you see Maud and Amanda having some quite close intimate moments almost there's almost you know there's a religious overtone but a kind of a sexual undertone it's not overt and so Maud and and Amanda become quite close simultaneously Amanda's having this kind of pseudo relationship with a girl who she sees, you know, at night when Maud's not around. And you can see how Maud's overt reaction to that is one of pious disapproval, but the undertone is she feels rejected and she feels abandoned because she's developing this closeness with Amanda and she doesn't have any other people that she's close with. And the the sort of things that Amanda is in, engaging with um, are a, are a direct affront to Maud's attempts to spiritually save Amanda. Amanda so Maud then just tries to intervene and she tries to get uh, Amanda's girlfriend to to stop coming over, and that's sort of one step too far from Amanda, and eventually culminates in this fight at Amanda's birthday party where I think more than slaps Amanda and, and she gets fired as a result. What happens next is very interesting of course so Maud kind of descends into this period where she kind of hits rock bottom and really this rock bottom 
period exposes what a defense everything before it was. So it exposes that this this pious religious attitude wasn't really an authentic expression of, of Maud's self. Of course, it could be in another person, another way. But in the case of Maud, you know, as soon as Amanda rejects her, the whole omnipotence, piousness collapses and she acts in the total opposite way. How can we understand this? So again, in psychoanalytic thinking, particularly in, a, in the work of a neo-Freudian called Karen Horney, there's an idea that an attempt to avoid dealing with our real self, what people do is they construct an idealized self. So in the case of Maud, her idealized self is this spiritually enlightened person. But the problem with an idealized self is it's it's fictitious and it's inauthentic and normally it's impossible to enact consistently in the real world. And so people strive towards an idealized self and they can be grandiose and narcissistic and self-righteous and all of those things. Eventually in the striving they fail and then they collapse to a kind of denigrated self and they collapse into self-loathing. So you can think about it as the, as though there are two poles that people with a lot of neurosis tend to fluctuate between. They tend to fluctuate either between this idealized self where they're putting themselves on a pedestal and setting totally unachievable goals or states of being. They fail and then they, they uh, collapse into self-loathing. And that's what, exactly what happens to Maud. When she hits rock bottom, she spends a couple of days of just drinking and casual sex and self-harm. It's also worth noting that she kind of self-harms intermittently throughout the film, even when she's acting more pious. And this is really, I think, a reflection of, you know, the self-loathing that's always there, even when she is trying to enact this idealized self. Now, eventually, when in, in the midst of being at rock bottom, she has this kind of religious experience. And when you're watching the film, you see her essentially levitating and there are fireworks in the background and her pious self comes back. So she's, she's now she's hit sort of the, the peak of self-loathing and then rebounds back to the omnipotent kind of defense that we described earlier with a renewed sense of, of invigoration. And again, she's pursuing the same target. So she's pursuing Amanda, who she's, she's going to try and, spiritually safe of course now her strategy has become more and more extreme and she starts kind of watching amanda and her new care from afar and then she kind of tries to befriend amanda's new care but gets rebuffed and eventually she breaks into amanda's house at night and she has a conversation with amanda and i think she's throwing these these droplets of of bleach on Amanda and attempt to try and try and cleanse her and then in the course of their conversation Amanda kind of lures Maud in and and gives her the impression that she wants to be saved again but then finally rejects Maud with a with a with a cruel joke and this 
rejection proves to be too much for Maud to handle. What what you see on film is that Amanda becomes this kind of demon, like she's possessed, and Maud stabs her to death. Now, how I would interpret this kind of along with all the other seemingly supernatural stuff that happens is you you, you could interpret it as Maud having a psychotic break. But what's more interesting than that is, again, what's happening psychologically. So why does Amanda rejecting Maud cause this this anger and this violence? Well, again, the rejection is the shattering of Maud's illusion of omnipotence. And the omnipotence is just serving as a defense for this immense sense of fragility that Maud carries around with her, fragility and and loneliness and and isolation. So whenever Amanda shatters Maud's defenses like that, what it leaves for Maud is the sense of feeling very, very exposed, vulnerable and humiliated. And then the immediate reaction to that is very often in people when they feel so fragile, exposed, vulnerable, is anger and violence. That's often a reflexive reaction that people see. And you can see it in a lot of recent movies. So you see it in films like The Joker, which was released last year, where Joker's acts of violence are really preceded by intense humiliation and vulnerability. And you also see it in the movie Parasite, where, again, spoiler alert, the father at the end he commits an act of murder after that final sense of humiliation and that sense of being made to feel small that's often that that shattering of that defense and that feeling of vulnerability is often what precedes profound acts of violence and you can even see it in the psychological profiles of of some some mass shooters like the the columbine killers uh, for example that they felt you know chronically humiliated so so Maud murders Amanda and then having done so she goes she goes to the beach in the town where she lives and she lights herself on fire and what you see when she does that is on, on one scene a sense of that she's finally achieved through lighting herself on fire the sense of ultimate salvation and then the scene rapidly changes and you see for for what it is she's burning herself alive and this is really the self-idealization and the self-loathing finally coming together in this this culmination. The ultimate act of self-harm, initially feeling like the ultimate sense of salvation. So really, it's it's a very tragic story, obviously. And what it illustrates so nicely is the danger of the danger of relying too much on these ego defenses and of not facing reality for what it is. And it's hard for people to face reality. Maud's reality was not an easy one, yet it still did her way too much harm to escape from reality to the extent that she did, even though it might have been a good sort of short-term strategy to help her feel better. Ultimately, it's it's manifested as total self-destruction, and there are there's at least one point in the film 
where you think things could have been different. She had a, a friend from the place where she used to work before the events of the film. And during the period in the middle of the film where she hits rock bottom, she calls this friend and it's only by chance that the friend wasn't in a position to meet her. And the friend later, later reaches out to Maud again once Maud has kind of reconstructed this pious defense. And you wonder, watching the film, what if the friend was only in a position to have a, make a connection with Maud when she was at rock bottom? Because even though obviously it's hard being at rock bottom, it's probably a place where some change is possible because, again, those, those defenses are lowered. You can feel your fragility for what it is. And that's probably the best window to make any kind of meaningful change psychologically. So you wonder what could have happened if only her friend could have made that connection with Maud when she was in a place when she could receive it. Because then when the friend then actually goes to Maud's flat once Maud has become that pious sort of persona again and the friend is really earnestly just trying to help Maud Maud is just not you know defenses are back up and she's just not in a position to receive any kind of authentic reaching out she's she's protected again so that's that's more or less how, how I think you can interpret the film psychoanalytically. It's worth mentioning that you know we discussed kind of one major ego defense, which is this defense by way of omnipotence. But there are a lot of ways people can defend their egos and, and their vulnerabilities. They can defend, defend themselves by being, for example, in denial. They can defend themselves by being resentful and vindictive. They can be self-effacing. They can project their difficulties onto other people. Um, so there's, there's all there's all sorts of quite sophisticated ways that people can, without knowing it, you know, unconsciously deal with their vulnerabilities, avoid dealing with their vulnerabilities realistically. We all do it. It's a natural part of of being a person. But the the key is is to start to develop an awareness of where you might be doing this slowly and gradually become more aware of the ways in which you're trying to avoid reality for what it is. So I hope you found that useful. It was certainly interesting for me to do it. And if you like this kind of thing, this kind of... You are listening to The Thinking Mind Podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend or you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team and the links for that will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.